I want to encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles to Genesis 6, as we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, but I I feel confident that I've mapped out a way for us to do so that is true to the text, that is God-honoring and edifying for us. I'll, I'll warn you, though, it may feel a bit like trying to take a sip of water from a fire hydrant this morning, all right? So... I'm going to do my best to, to turn that, that spigot down just a little bit to make sure that we are able to, to soak up everything that, that God has for us in his word. But uh, I've been truly humbled by preparing for this message, and I hope that it will bless you. So last week, we saw the introduction of sin into God's good creation. And then we saw God's immediate judgment of that sin by sending out Adam and Eve from the garden and judging the serpent and as well as the promise that he would one day ultimately redeem his creation by crushing the head of the serpent. And so today, as we pick back up in Genesis chapter 6, we'll see the wide-reaching impact of sin and just how naturally the human heart turns to worship of self as we saw beginning last week. Now, you might already be saying to yourself, how did we get from chapter 3 to chapter 6? And you didn't miss anything. Now, at least not all of you, as some of, a, some of our church family members had to join us virtually last week. But uh, this is one of those magnifying glass moments that I've been talking about. As we started this series, I I said that uh, for the last few weeks, we've been saying some of the times we're going to be looking through a microscope, and that is very much the approach that we've had the last few weeks as we looked at the first three chapters, and now it's time to look through the magnifying glass to kind of pull several chapters together here. And so you might see on your outline, we're looking at Genesis chapters 6 through 8, and that uh, encompasses all that takes place in the flood. So we need only to do a brief survey of our culture to see that the truths revealed in Genesis transcend time. And that's the purpose in in looking at not just the foundations of the world, but you may have noticed a theme in our notes and in our outline as we move through that I've been pointing out these different foundations that Genesis lays for us. As the, the title for this series came from God's questioning of Job, of where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? But the reality is Genesis, as we said before we began this series, gives us an understanding of much of what we read throughout the rest of the Bible. And so if we don't understand Genesis, we don't understand the rest of God's word. And so we see all of these foundations laid for us in Genesis. And so as we look at our world and our culture, we can see that these truths transcend time, corrupt governments, unstable economies, devaluing of marriage, devaluing of human life based off of subjective reasoning. And what we'll see this morning is the sinful condition of the human heart and God's response to that sin. But we'll also see the grace of God to provide protection, to sustain a remnant for his good purposes. So I'll ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word one more time. And we'll read from Genesis chapter 6, as we'll spend most of our time in chapter 6 this morning, for it lays the foundation for the rest of the story, but we'll read from Genesis chapter 6 for our reading. 
beginning in verse 1. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who were born children to them. They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God, and Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. This is how you are to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. You are to make a roof, finishing the sides of the ark to within 18 inches of the roof. You are to put a door in the side of the ark, make it lower, make it with lower, middle, and upper decks. Understand that I am bringing a flood, floodwaters on the earth, to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything in earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. You are also to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of everything, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten, gather it as food for you and for them. And Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. Let's pray. God, as we prepare to see what you have laid up for us, the treasure that you have stored for us in your word, we pray that you would help focus us as we have already prayed earlier. But God, we pray it again because we know our hearts are bent toward ourselves. We know our hearts are prone to wander. And so, God, we pray that you would bind us in our wandering. And by your grace, that you would reveal yourself to us through your word, that we may take up the ministry of, of reconciliation, of, of making people, uh, of making your name known among the nations and the peoples. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated this morning. So, a lot to cover here, and especially as we have chapter 7 and 8 as well, in which everything that God just, just outlined takes place. But real quick, I want to kind of give contextualize the, the two chapters that we 
skipped over in in making our way to chapter 6 here. So in chapter 4, we immediately see the effects of sin on God's good creation as Cain is furious with God that God favors his brother Abel's offering over his. And so Cain kills his brother. And this shows us the immediate depravity of the human heart in many ways. You see, Cain and Abel, they they were not there when their mother and father disobeyed God's word for that initial sin. So what does this teach us about the people of God, about people and the people, uh, about us as the people of God? And nobody ever has to teach us how to sin. That, That sin is more pervasive than just our disobedience. That, that sin is now the condition of the human heart is what this presents to us and is what we see as we move through our text this morning. As we read, even in bringing an offering, Abel is designated as having brought his best offering, the, the first fruits, so to speak, his, his best offering, while Cain simply brought from his surplus. So this shows us why God favored Abel's offering over Cain's. The author of Hebrews expounds on this as he points to Abel's offering as one of faith. But God once again shows grace by allowing Cain to live. So even after he sins, we continue to see God show grace that he may make his name known and make his name great. And so he allows Cain to live even though he has sinned, but he sends him away. He disciplines him by banishing him from his family and from his land. So at the end of chapter 4, we have a small but important line. Now, this is obviously following Cain's sin as the Lord blesses Adam and Eve with another son named Seth. And then we read that at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. So this is the first reference to prayer that we have in the Bible. As people, what were they praying for? Why were they praying in this moment? They wanted to see the Lord fulfill what he had said there at the end of chapter 3, that he would send one through the line of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. And with Cain obviously disobeying God's word and God's way, they see that it was clear that it was not Cain or Abel who would be the one that would crush the head of the serpent. And so now they have Seth and they're praying, they're crying out to the Lord that the Lord would fulfill that promise to redeem them and to crush the head of the serpent and that their relationship with God would be redeemed. And so now Moses shows God's providence in the midst of the spread of sin by detailing how God preserves his word and his people. And so in chapter 5, we see the line of of Seth and of Cain there at the end of chapter 4 and in chapter 5. And we see the spread of people through the earth. And we then that brings us here to chapter 6. And so as mankind begins to spread and they begin to have families, we see that when mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, The sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind were beautiful, and they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with them, with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward. When the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind who bore children to them, 
They were the powerful men of old, the famous men. So this is one of the most disputed and disagreed upon passages of Scripture in Genesis. And that's saying a lot. I mean, there's a, there's a lot that people disagree on and, and have different viewpoints on in Genesis. But this is one of those that captures people's imagination and just really infatuates us because we have some things that aren't really discussed or expounded upon throughout the rest of Scripture, let alone in these four verses. So with that being said, I hate to disappoint you, but I'm going to try my best not to spend too much time on these passages because there's a reason when authors of biblical texts don't spend a lot of time on things. And so one of the primary principles of hermeneutics, that is the the study of Scripture, is authorial intent, meaning that a text cannot mean what it did not mean, what the author, what the original author did not intend it to mean for its original audience. And so in looking at a passage of Scripture, one of the easiest ways to tell if something is key or important is to look at how much time the author spent writing about it. Do they repeat themselves? Do they expound upon the subject? We, we use this principle throughout our own personal Bible study, that we look and we see if the word therefore is there, or we see if something is repeated time and again throughout a chapter or a book, and we know that this is a big idea, a main point that the author is trying to get across, and so it is here. So in taking those principles to this short four-verse paragraph, do you think this subject was of key importance to Moses as he was telling this story? The, the answer is no. So, this was not a key point. He assumes that the audience reading this, the Israelites that he's writing this for, post-Exodus, that they understand all of these things. Unfortunately, we do not. And so, that begins the points of contention and disagreement and, and different things. So, all we can do is judge what we see throughout the rest of the Bible and use that as our reference for how we interpret what is written here. The first thing in this passage that catches our attention is the designation of two different groups, the daughters of mankind. Now that one's pretty straightforward, right? The the daughters of literal men and then the sons of God. So this is one which which gets people twisted up, twisted up. That there's three different views on who, what the sons of God is referring to here in this passage. The first is that these are beings which are not human, but are fallen angels or demons, and that they've corrupted mankind. And this is simply a short narrative that's bridging the gap between telling the line of Seth and of Cain, and then showing the quickly devolving nature of mankind by how fast things devolve because of sin. The second view is that these are powerful rulers or kings that became corrupted, but this one is not widely accepted. And the third is that these are men who are simply godly descendants of Seth, so that the sons of God are godly descendants of Seth that became corrupted by intermarrying with the line of Cain. I tend to lean toward the first view being the correct interpretation because we see this title of sons of God being used elsewhere, just a few other places in scripture, and it's referring to heavenly beings or angels. And so in any case, what is clear is that this was an abomination to God, that what was taking place here was a quickly devolving 
earth, a quickly devolving mankind because of sin. And that this is deserving of God's further judgment and wrath. So God declares in verse 3 that their days will be 120 years. Now this one also has a few other interpretations. I tend to think that it means that sometime after Noah, man will not live past 120 years of age. That's probably the most widely accepted interpretation. But it could also represent God's proclamation of judgment coming 120 years after what is being said here. That is the flood. And so it could be a proclamation of warning of the flood or the, the issue with thinking of it in terms of the age of man is that we have a few examples of early faith fathers here that live longer than 120 years, such as Noah and Abram uh, and Jacob. So I tend to think it, it, it's referring to 120 years of age. Anyways, I've already spent more time than I wanted to on it. So when we look at the events of Genesis 4 and the line of Cain being sent out because of sin, and then the line of Seth progressing and the people calling out to God and praying to God, then we're shown that sin sent mankind to an even steeper downward trajectory. That it didn't just end with Cain, or, and as we saw, it didn't just end with Adam and Eve, but that sin was now pervasive, that marriage was defiled, that horrible men were lifted up as powerful and famous. And that's what we have with these Nephilim that are referred to. These are giants that are the offspring of these abhorrent marriages. And that these men are being lifted up as famous and powerful. And so we see our first point this morning that Genesis lays the foundation for the lasting effects of sin. That Genesis lays the foundation for the lasting effects of sin. It quickly becomes abundantly clear that sin is not something which mankind can handle and just do away with on our own. And we have that here at the beginning. One of the things that I'm convicted of time and again as, as I read God's word is how easily we default to discussing sin uh, in terms of simply a list of bad deeds. And while this may be a useful way to discuss sin or demonstrate sin, it can often fool us into thinking in terms of, of sin being able to be dealt with by comparing our list of bad deeds with someone else's list or our list of good deeds with our list of bad deeds. And the problem with this is because we're so broken in our sinfulness, even our good deeds are but filthy rags before God. And so we must be careful not to simplify sin as a list of bad deeds, but instead as a condition of our heart. Our bad deeds are a symptom of a sin-infected heart. The next few verses provide us with even greater context as to the purpose of these, this introductory paragraph. And so Moses here is, is bridging the gap between telling of the line of Seth and of Cain, and then we see man devolve into sin quickly, and then we move to verse 5. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. Here we're given a few things through the Lord's eyes. And the truth which we just discussed becomes abundantly clear, which is that sin infects deeper than deeds. I don't think we truly grasp the depths of the evil that is described here in this phrasing. 
What is described is a place where the hearts of every human are so seared that they are devoid of any sense of morals or ethics or goodness. And the issue wasn't just that Adam and Eve had broken God's law, which was bad enough, but that in doing so, this revealed, this, this created this sinful nature within mankind. That when given the choice, we choose ourselves every single time. That that is who we truly desire to worship because of our sin nature, is we desire to worship ourselves and our ways, which is why we're so desperately dependent upon God's grace to act on our behalf and to make a way where we cannot do so ourselves. You see, Moses here describes a situation in which the hearts of men were so evil that God perceived that repentance was not even possible for them. Lest we look at this and consider ourselves, why would God allow innocent people to die? That's what some people will will ask or question or, or skeptics will say of this stories like this in the Bible. And the reality is that there are none who are innocent. That's the issue, is that we're all guilty of sin before a holy God. So God's judgment here is not unprovoked or hasty, but God's judgment is just. See, Moses points us to the gracious, long-suffering patience of God by his phrasing. You saw it there, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread. See, this is a writing element in which Moses is using the same language that he used in the creation narrative. Did you catch that? In the creation narrative, we see, and God saw that it was good. Now, God looks at his creation And the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth. See, this is a a, a narrative in which Moses is, is paralleling the flood narrative with the creation narrative. Because what God is doing here is decreating and and passing judgment down on the earth. And first, he looked at his creation and saw that it was good. Now he looks and sees the complete opposite. And so the judgment is that it must be gotten rid of so that sin can be done away with. Moses here is communicating the depravity of the situation. This is also not intended to communicate that this was a hasty decision or surprise response by God, but instead that it was only by his grace that God allowed any time to pass at all. And thus, we get God's further response in verse six. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved. See, one of our points of emphasis for the last few weeks has been the personal nature of God that is revealed throughout scripture, but specifically here in in the creation narrative and in the fall of man. We see God's personal nature on full display as he shows grace to Adam and Eve to, to provide for them coverings of, of animal skin. And then he sends them out, yes, but the purpose of sending them out was so that they, in their discipline, would realize their wrongdoing and return to him in repentance. And we see that on display here once again as we see the effect that sin has on the heart of God. That sin grieves the heart of God. See, this points us to the truth that God's just punishment of sin 
And his wrath towards sin comes from a place of grief. It's not something which he takes delight in, rather something he grieves as being right and necessary. Which leads us to the next verse in verse 7. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created off the face of the earth together with the animals and the creatures that crawl and the birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. Showing us that sin is justly deserving of judgment. See, God looks at the creation that he once declared good and now sees nothing but evil, not even the ability to repent. He sees chaos and brokenness. And so because God doesn't just see the symptoms of our brokenness, he sees the heart from which everything flows, this spurs him to act in a way which will bring him glory and redeem creation that it may bring him glory once again. And this is his desire to see his creation redeemed that it might bring him glory again. See, our standard for morality is not based on us Declaring people right or wrong, good or bad. But our standard for morality is based on what God's word says is good and true. And God has revealed to us in his word that all people are sinful and deserving of his judgment. And that all people are guilty. So in what way can we be justified before a holy God? How can we be made right? We look at verses 8 through 10. We see Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. See, this is where we see hope provided by the Lord. Verse 9, these are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. And Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. As we press on in Genesis, we see that the character attributes of God, which were introduced to us early on, carry throughout the rest of Scripture. So God is immutable by nature. That is to say, He does not change. And this gives us all confidence and assurance and hope that we can know God through His Word. Because as he has acted in history, so he still acts according to those same purposes. So we know that his attitude toward us and his character never changes. So as we've seen early on in this series, some of the attributes of God that we've been introduced to or laid the foundation for, as I mentioned earlier, is his personal nature, his creator uh, role, his role as sustainer and redeemer. And his nature as being just. So we know and see these things from the beginning. So as we continue to see the story develop, we continue to see God's nature as he acts in history to bring about his wise and good purposes. Last week we saw the immediate impact of sin, God's just response, as well as God's response of grace. That even in his judgment of discipline, even in his judgment and discipline, God was still showing grace and allowing Adam and Eve to live. So now he looks at this situation in which he looks at mankind and sees the heart of evil and that their mind is set on nothing but fulfilling their desires. 
and we see God show grace as he looks and he sees Noah. Because this time God preserves for himself a remnant in a man named Noah that they may bring him glory. See, this is the first reference of righteousness in the Bible. And here we see that Moses, as the narrator, is describing Noah as, a, as righteous. And later on in chapter 7 and verse 1, we see the Lord himself designate Noah as righteous. But how was Noah righteous in such a perverse generation? How was Noah righteous when he possessed the same sinful heart as the rest of the world? Well, we see the answer right there in verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. That despite his sinfulness and despite the sinfulness of the world around him, he walked with God. This lays the foundation for the truth that righteousness comes by faith. See, Noah was saved by grace through faith. As we read the flood account, we must realize that one of Moses' primary focuses here is not on the flood itself. See, we often do this when we read incredible events like this and we see incredible things happen in Scripture. We get caught up on the what instead of focusing on the who. The one that is making the incredible things happen according to his purposes and for his glory. And so the focus is not on the flood itself, but on God's actions within the story to judge sin and save for himself a remnant who would rightly worship him in covenant obedience and repentance. Thus, when we shift our focus solely on the flood, we are shifting our focus away from what God wants us to see in the story, and that is his sovereign glory. Of course, this is what has been accomplished for us in Christ. We read this in Titus chapter 3. If you're taking notes and want to write that off to the side, Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. Through the washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that having been justified by his grace, we may become heirs with the hope of eternal See, this didn't just start in the New Testament, but this was God's purpose from the beginning. That anyone who was saved was saved by grace, by his choosing, by grace, through their faith. So we've already been told that the human heart was only evil. So we must know that Noah himself was also lost in his sin. So what was it about Noah that caused him to find favor in the eyes of the Lord? Noah walked with God. So what set Noah apart was his faith to walk with the Lord in the midst of such brokenness. His faith which resulted in steadfast obedience in the face of such unprecedented wickedness. See, the author of Hebrews points this out for us as well in Hebrews chapter 11. Now without faith... It is impossible to please God. 
Since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So it was by grace, through faith, that Noah looked, excuse me, that God looked and saw Noah, that despite the wickedness, here was one man who walked with God. And so Noah, so God showed his grace by preserving Noah and his family. If you'll skip to verse 17, you see God pronounced to Noah exactly what we just read the author of Hebrews describe. He pronounces to Noah what he is getting ready to do. Understand that I am bringing a flood, floodwaters on the earth, to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. So again, this decreation. We began with this language similar to that of the creation narrative that God saw that it was good. Now we begin here with God saw that it was evil. But I will, verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your son's wives. You are also to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of everything, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, and from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten, gather it as food for you and for them. See, this promise of God's protection and provision is what sustains Noah through a century of hard labor and living as an exile among the evil of the world. Genesis, yet again, provides us with an example of the all-sufficient nature of God's Word. See that phrase right there in verse 18. But I will establish my covenant with you. This is the gospel. That God has established a covenant according to His purposes by His grace. And this is what sustains Noah, is that even though God is going to destroy everything, he has assurance because God has said that he will establish a covenant with him to protect him and preserve him as a remnant. And that is what sustains Noah through it all, is that God's word is our all-sufficient source. That God's word is our all-sufficient source. See, this is what sustains Noah and his family through the years of hard labor, through building the ark, and this is what sustains them through the wind and the rain and the waves. God's word. As we read God's final words before the storm, we see this now takes place in in, in chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Noah, As we read God's words, final words before the storm. Then the Lord said to Noah, enter the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you alone are righteous before me in this generation. 
You are to take with you seven pairs, a male and its female, of all the clean animals, and two of the animals that are not clean, a male and its female, and seven pairs, male and female, of the birds of the sky, in order to keep offspring alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now I will make it rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing I have made I will wipe off the face of the earth. These are God's final words before the storm comes. See, these words from God establish his covenant with Noah. He told him that he would establish a covenant with him. And then before the storm comes, he establishes his covenant with Noah to reaffirm not just the work that he was doing here, but to set up the covenant sacrificial system that was to come. See, did you notice that part? Now remember, this is in addition to the command that he's already given Noah to collect two animals of every kind. So why does God ask Noah to take seven pairs of all cleaned animals? Because these are the animals that would make up the coming sacrificial system of the coming covenant that God would establish with his people. See, God was already preparing the way. He already knew that they would disobey after the exodus. And Moses is saying, God knew that you would be complaining here in the wilderness. God knew that you would be complaining the moment we left. But he made a way. So why does God ask Noah to take seven pairs of clean animals? Because he was preparing a way. Now I would like to quickly address the other issue which Genesis brings up, and that is the discussion of whether this is a global or local flood. And I say quickly because there's really not much to discuss. See, the flood as it's presented in Scripture was a global event. Those who read it as local simply imply error on behalf of Noah or Moses or only telling it from, as only telling it from their perspective and the person of the Holy Spirit. There are different words in Hebrew that define local and global or earth or the totality of creation, and that is what is used to describe the event that we see take place here. So some will say, well, if you took every drop of water out of every cloud in the sky, you wouldn't have enough water to flood the whole earth. And that may in fact be true. I can't quantify that for you. I don't have that number of all the water of the clouds in the sky. But what we have described by Scripture is not merely a meteorological occurrence. But what we read in verses 11 and 12 is this. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, this is of chapter 7, on that day, all the sources of the vast watery depths burst open. The floodgates of the sky were opened, and the rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. See, this wasn't just simply rain. It just wasn't simply a thunderstorm or a hurricane, but this was an event by the hand of God that the vast watery depths were opened. This isn't just your run-of-the-mill storm, but this is a divine intervention, a divine event in which God is passing judgment and decreating that which he once saw as good. And this isn't just your run-of-the-mill promise from God that God gives to Noah, as if there was just a run-of-the-mill promise from God. 
This is a, a covenant that establishes the relationship between man and God. And so Genesis lays the foundation for covenant relationship. See, Moses wants the people of God to understand just how important and precious and rare covenant relationship with God is. And so as they're post-Exodus and he is telling them these things of what God did to make a way and how God created them and created the land in which they are going to and created everything that they see, he wants them to know that relationship with God is special. Because there once was a time when the earth was so evil, God saw it and he, covenant, he made a covenant relationship with one person. And here Moses is saying, and here he has established us, a people, for his purposes, to make his name known. Here we see that it is not us who can initiate this relationship or possess the righteousness necessary to enter into the relationship, but that it is an act of God's grace and provision because God is the one who preserves Noah. Noah has no petition before God to say that he is righteous enough. But it is by grace, through faith, that Noah is declared righteous before God. See, Moses wants the people to understand that outside of covenant relationship with God, that we are all on the outside of the ark, not the inside. Along those lines, Moses wants the people to see that the right response to covenant relationship is to walk in obedience. Any other response is to break the covenant and is deserving of judgment. See, God graciously acts on his behalf, on behalf of his name, to preserve a faithful remnant in the line of Noah. And Noah's response, time and again, Moses points out, again, repetition, he points out Moses, that Noah did as God said. Noah was obedient. See, Jesus points to this story as a foretaste of his second coming in Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 39, Jesus says this, As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the Son of Man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. See, the message that we have as the people of God, as the church, is that God's judgment against sin is just and that God's judgment against sin is coming again. Now, the good news of our message is that God, in His grace, has provided protection from His judgment, not in an ark, but on a cross that he has preserved for himself a faithful remnant through the sacrifice of one man, and that is Jesus. That if we repent of our sin and believe in him, we too can be saved. We can find ourselves on the inside of the ark and not on the outside, swept away. Because what takes place after the Lord, after the Lord establishes his covenant with Noah is a poetic dismantling of the creation that God had once called good. See, creation had so devolved because of sin that God now acts to decreate, as I've used that term many times. For 40 days and nights, the rains pour, the deeps are emptied of their waters, flooding the earth with God's judgment and grief. And we've talked a lot the last four weeks about how Moses uses this poetic structure called a chiasm. 
to show God's intentionality and purpose and design in every detail of the foundations of the world as well as in his actions here. And I've provided an example of how the flood narrative also forms a chiastic structure for us. If we'll go to that next slide there, you can see it right here. I know the the type is much smaller, but I'll do my best to kind of explain what we see here. So the, the word itself, chiasm or chiastic structure, comes from the Greek letter of chi, which is an X, right? So it's a, it's a Greek term to describe what was taking place here. But you see how the, as you lay out the parallels of the scripture, they form this X structure. And that's where the name of it comes from. But you can see I've laid out the parallels for us here. So as we see in chapter 6, verse 11 through 13, as I, the Lord says, I have decided to put an end to every creature. Well, that parallels with the end of the story in chapter 8 verses 21 through 22 where the Lord says the Lord where the Lord makes a promise not to destroy mankind in this way again so he sets out to put an end to everything and then he promises not to do this ever again those two parallel with each other and then on the next line you see Noah builds the ark and then at the end of the story we see Noah build an altar and then the next line the Lord tells Noah to enter the ark Well, then that's paralleled later in the story with the Lord telling Noah to leave the ark. And then we see God begins the flood. And then the next, that's paralleled with chapter 8, where we see that the flood is over and the earth dries out. And then the flood covers in 150 days. Well, then that's paralleled with the flood recedes in 150 days. And then we find ourselves in the middle there where God is faithful to his covenant and remembers Noah. You see, all throughout this story, we're seeing the intentionality and purpose behind what God does. That there is nothing that he does hastily or out of, out of emotional response, but that he is acting according to his plans and purposes. And that what he calls us to as, as, he, as the only thing that can justify us is that we are justified by grace through faith That the response of us being declared righteous before God, by God, and before God, the response to that is obedience is the evidence of faith, not the other way around. Faith produces obedience. Obedience does not produce faith. Obedience is the evidence of faith. What an amazing testimony to God's faithfulness and grace that Noah lived this long and lived for God's glory amidst such a sinful and evil generation. And yet he is noted and remembered for his life of faithful obedience to keep God's word. See, this is the challenge. This is the call. This is the standard for which we are all to strive. Yet we know that we cannot strive for this type of life based on our own abilities or goodness. Because of our brokenness, we need God's grace. We need God's guidance and mercy to open our eyes to this world and to his word, to turn our hearts in repentance and to move our feet in obedience. See, if you're here with us Wednesday or you tuned in virtually, you'll remember we've been following along in our prayer guide and we saw the heart cry of the psalmist David as he throws himself at the mercy of God's grace to turn his heart 
to better understand and to know God's word. See, God's word is what sustains us because his word is sure and his promises are true. Because he is immutable and never changing, we know that he who called us is faithful to sustain us. And this is the promise of the ark. This is the promise of the gospel, that sin is evil, but God is good. And sin is deserving of punishment, but God is both the just judge and the provider of salvation from his judgment. That we are saved by God's grace and from God's judgment. As we see there in verse 22 of chapter 7. Everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth, from mankind to livestock to the creatures that crawl to the birds of the sky, and they were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him on the ark. See, what we see in this narrative is that covenant relationship requires accountability on our behalf. And it requires accountability also for those who are not in covenant and those outside of the covenant. Only those inside the covenant are saved. And therefore, they are held accountable to a life of faithful obedience and repentance. And those outside of the covenant incite the immediate accountability of God. And that's exactly what happens here. As the floodwaters rage, the only people left alive are those who are under God's grace through covenant relationship, which is Noah and his family. See, this is too often one of those things that is whitewashed from our depictions and retellings of the flood is the massive loss of life. The only thing that can save us from God's just wrath is God's grace. And the reality is that the same just judgment lies ahead of us today. The same gavel is prepared to fall one last time. And only those who cling to the cross or the ark, if you will, of Christ, by grace, through faith, will be saved. So we must walk in obedience to proclaim the message of Christ that those whom God would save would have the blindfold of this world removed and that they would surrender to the God who created them and called them according to his purposes. We read this there at the beginning of chapter 8. We find hope. God remembered Noah as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God caused a wind to pass over the earth and water began to subside. So once again there we see the parallels of creation and and decreation as what do we see at the beginning of creation? The spirit of God hovered over the waters and now the wind, God causes a wind and the word in Hebrew for wind and spirit are the same. So God causes a wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. So showing the redemption of, of creation according to God's actions. So here we see once again how the flood parallels the Genesis 1 creation narrative. And we see God recreate or redeem that which he once saw as good but was stained by sin. Now he has redeemed it according to his purposes. Let's skip there to, to chapter, uh, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 20. Chapter 8, verse 20. We see God 
concluding his work here of the, in the flood story, and we see Noah's response. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. See, at the end of this part of the narrative, we see the perfect response to God's judgment, to God's discipline, and and to God's grace in our lives, and that is that Noah worships. See, the purpose of God's word of judgment and of discipline is itself an act of grace meant to point us back to him in repentance and bring us to a posture of worship. And so it is to be with us that we, as a response to the grace of God shown us in Christ on the cross, that we live our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, that our life is a literal act of worship to the Lord. See, part of walking in obedience to that is sharing the gospel with those who are still outside the boat. That God calls us to join him in his work of reconciliation by being the ones whom he uses to share the gospel with those who he is calling to himself. And this is the challenge of the flood. That we heed its warning. That we remain faithful as the remnant who God has saved for his purposes. And that we walk in obedience to make his name known and shine his light in the darkness. I've talked several times to begin this year and as we're kind of closing out 2021 about our Who's Your One initiative for this year. And that'll kind of really get started. Next Sunday is the final Sunday in this first month of 2022 of January. And on that Sunday, I'm going to challenge all of us to have one person who we are going to commit to having a gospel conversation with, an intentional gospel conversation with for this year. And again, one person is the minimum. It's the minimum. I'm not telling you you can only have one person, but this is our who's your one initiative. And we'll continue to emphasize this month to month, week to week throughout the year. But the purpose of this is to fulfill and walk in obedience to our great commission to make disciples, to make his name known among the nations. To close out, I'll read for you from Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21, where we see echoes of these same things that we just read, where Paul says, pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. And so that is our challenge, to make the most of the time, to pay attention to how we walk. Why? Because the days are evil. And so that we won't be foolish, but that we will understand what God's will is. So the challenge for us in the flood is to see God's grace his provision of salvation and his purposes in everything that takes place. 
Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you for your word, first and foremost, and for how it challenges us and pushes us, and God, how it calls us to repentance and obedience. I thank you for allowing us to gather in this way in which we can consider these truths, in which we can be challenged and corrected in some of our, uh, in the cases of some of us where we have been convicted of, of, of how we have not been appreciative or living in accordance with what you have accomplished for us. God, thank you for blessing the reading of your word, and I pray that it would bear fruit in our lives for your glory, and we know that that will be for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.